you guys want to turn to Romans, that's where we're going to be this morning. Today, we uh, start a new mini-series that is going to take us into to Holy Week and into Easter. And this short series is intended to prepare our mind and our heart to go into Easter rightly. And so we are calling this uh, short series, The Symbols of Christ. It's a four-part series, which will include a Good Friday service, right? So three Sundays and a Good Friday service. And it's meant to get us start thinking about what are the things that Christ has given us to remember him, to connect with him, and to connect with each other as a family of God as we move into to Holy Week and Easter, all right? Uh, so that's what we're doing the next four weeks. Um, but we should pause before we get into today and just recognize that in our culture, in America, in evangelicalism, we don't hold these things called symbols or rituals or sacraments or ceremonies. We don't hold those the way that they've been held in the past. Um, we tend to distance ourselves from anything formal or stuffy or that don't make sense, um, and we get disassociated with those symbols and, and with those rituals and celebrations of our faith. Um, so it seems foreign to us, but I want to just maybe challenge you this morning with the idea that you're more familiar with symbols and rituals and celebrations than, than you might think. Okay, in our American culture. I'll give you an example. If you were in Oakland last night, one person from Oakland, awesome. If you were in Oakland last night, you may have been gathering with a tribe of people, all right? And this tribe of people would have uh, known this certain symbol very well, this symbol uh, right here. Okay, you might. You might see that symbol and like, yes, that's my people, all right? Uh, or you might see this symbol, a similar symbol, right? And you're like, yes, okay, that's my people. You would definitely not see this symbol and be celebrated. You would not do that, okay? Uh, those are not my people. Those are not my people, all right? So, so if you were in Oakland last night and you're gathering and you are in your uh, your tribe, of, your warrior tribe of blue and gold, and you're entering an arena, right? You're entering an arena, and, uh, and listen, this arena is a, a ritual unto itself, all right? There's, there's specific kind of foods that you don't normally eat there, okay? There's really only one type of beverage that everyone is drinking there, all right? Uh, the language that you use is different there than it is in your office or at home, right? Uh, and everybody knows, okay? And, the, and then the weirdest thing happens, right? You're all gathering in your blue and gold and, and you're getting ready for this thing, this event to start, but then everyone stops. And everyone stands up and everyone sings together. And everyone knows the words. And they all turn and face this other symbol, right? What a weird thing that we do. This is a part of, uh, of American culture. I don't care if it, this was when you were in high school uh, to if you go to professional sporting events now or concerts or whatever. There are rituals and there are symbols all around us that we are connected to. And, and there's an intent 
with those symbols and those rituals. They are intended to connect you to something bigger than yourself and to the other people in that tribe, right? Right? So if you go to a Warriors game, you're, you're going to wear the jersey, you're going to wear the shirt, you're going to wear the thing, you're going to yell uh, for certain people but not others. You're going to high-five someone you've never met before. You don't know at all. You might even hug that person at the end of the game if things go well. Okay? Um, these are not normal things, but we rally around them. We rally around them. Okay? And so my... Um, my argument today is you're more familiar with these symbols that we're going to be talking about the next four weeks than you think you are. They are you are more familiar with this idea uh, than you might think you are. And yet in the church, for some reason, we have distanced ourselves from, from symbols and from rituals. And we are going to attempt to reestablish as a church what these things are, what they mean, and why they're important. And they are centered and focused around Christ, right? So for the next several ways, uh, next several weeks, uh, leading into Holy Week and eventually into Easter, which is our greatest celebration of all and remembrance, we'll be looking at four symbols of our faith, all right? Four symbols of our faith. Uh, Baptism. We'll be looking at the table, uh, communion. We'll be looking at the cross. And we'll be looking at the grave, These things that hold unique significance within our tribe and our community and and our family of God um, that we may have grown distant from or misunderstood or become disassociated with, we're going to try to re-engage. Okay? Does that sound good? Well, we're going to do it anyway. We're going to do it anyway. So buckle in. All right. So now with that, turn to Romans chapter 6 with me. If you're not there already. If you need a Bible, well, we may have already passed that up. But if you need a Bible, maybe raise your hand. Maybe there's one usher still out there. They can get you a Bible. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 14. This is Paul speaking. And here's what he says. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we no longer... that. Uh, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. You might want to underline that part. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died for sin once for all, 
but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign uh, in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are no long, no, not under the law, but under grace. Underline that as well, will you? Verse 14, for sin shall no longer be your master because you are no longer under the law, but under grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, far be it from me, God, to carry the weight of these words. Far be it from me and my finiteness, Lord, God, to try to explain who you are and and the mystery and the power of uh, our death to life and baptism to our church. So Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Would you clear my mind and my tongue, Lord? Would you open the hearts of your people, open their ears? Lord, give them new eyes to see. Lord, would you do something that is beyond what any human could do in any teaching capability? Far beyond it, Lord, would you move the hearts of your people? In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Okay, church, so... Let's start with this idea of baptism. What does our culture, our evangelical culture, say about baptism? Well, it's all over the map. It's all over the map. I'm sure if we took a poll, you all had very varying degrees of, uh, of connection with baptism at varying levels based on where you grew up with. Um, some say it's a way that you show that you're a Christian. It's your personal declaration to everyone else of something you have done and decided. Uh, some, maybe you, uh, you have no idea, maybe you were baptized as a baby. For all you know, somebody told you that. Um, maybe you were baptized as a baby. Or, or maybe your, your parents made you go to a class at your church and then someone sprinkled you with water at the end of that. I mean, it's all over the map. Some say you must be baptized to be saved. Others say you don't even have to believe but if you're baptized, you're in, okay? It's all over the map. We're not gonna address every one of these veins of baptism today, but instead, we're gonna start from a place of trying to understand what scripture says about baptism, right? I think that's a safe place to go, all right? So we are gonna start with the first place that we hear about baptism, and that is in Matthew chapter three. Will you guys turn with me there? Matthew chapter three. This is our first introduction in scripture to baptism as we know it. I'm gonna read uh, verses one through 17. And uh, you don't have to to read, maybe you can close your eyes and just sit with this story, this plot line that's unfolding, all right? Um, Matthew chapter three, verse one. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. 
A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the, from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Would you guys underline that? That's super important. We're going to come dive into that. And do not think you can say to our, yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax has been laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chafe with unquenchable fire. And then Jesus came. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Church, this is our introduction to baptism as, as we know it. And it's um, incredibly significant, this moment. I remember one of our tools as we're going through a year of biblical literacy is anytime you're introduced to a new thing or a new idea, that very first time, it holds enormous significance to the overall story. And we're looking here in Matthew chapter 3 at a pivot moment in the story of God, in the story of Israel, in the story of us. This is a, a momentous uh, event that's happening. So let's unpack this quickly. Um, notice that John is at the River Jordan. Does anybody remember what happened at the River Jordan? Why is that significant? It was the place where Israel, after being delivered from slavery and wandering for 40 years in the desert, it was the place they crossed to go into the promised land where they crossed to become that nation that God had promised them. That's what's happened. They're back at the same place, and that's significant. John is baptizing people from all over the region at the very place that Israel crossed to become a nation, the nation that God intended them to be, to give them the land that he had promised them. So this is a significant setting that we're in. But maybe even as we dial in a little bit closer, let's talk about this element of water. 
This element of water and the significance of what that would have meant to the people of Israel. Israel has a very different experience with water than you and I do. You and I shower in water. You and I cook with water. Uh, We play in water. We have water parks, all right? Uh, So this is different than the Jewish people. The Jewish people didn't vacation at the beach, right? As our, our sermon team was talking about. The Jewish people didn't vacation at the beach. Water was a scary thing. The sea was a scary place. Moving, living water was frightening. The idea that you would put your son or daughter on a water slide and send them down into a pool of water is like blasphemous, like abusive. You don't do that, all right? Water's scary stuff, and maybe you can, can relate a little bit to that. Um, when I was in, in college, um, it was 1997, I was 20 years old, and I was in way better shape than I am now. And it was El Nino. It was the winter El Nino of 1997, and uh, I was going to to college school in Costa Mesa in Orange County, Southern California. And, all right, come on. Um, (laughs) El Nino winter comes to Huntington Beach, and there are waves, there are sets uh, up to 10 or 12 feet, which is not normal for Huntington Beach at all. Um, and of course, being the young, stupid, uh, you know, testosterone-driven guy I was and the people I chose to hang out with, we said, oh, we'll go do that. And so we, we go out to Huntington Beach in uh, winter of 1997 with our surfboards. And I remember standing on the beach and I'm looking, <laughs> I'm looking out. I'm so, so stupid. I'm looking out at the ocean, and these are mountains of water. Mountains of water that are, are coming through at Huntington Beach. And I remember standing there with my surfboard thinking, this is probably not a good idea. <laughs> but of course, as happened far too often in my youth, a friend next to me turns and says, go big or go home, B. and runs into the water. So I, of course, am not gonna be that guy who stands back and lets that be the last words I hear. So I charge on after my buddy and, uh, and we're waiting, it's in between sets and we paddle out and um, it, the water's rough but it's not that crazy and we're waiting. Okay? And the way the ocean works is, is wave co- waves come in sets, and then there's lulls and breaks. We were sitting in one of those lulls and breaks, and then the sets start rolling in. And, and I just <laughs> clearly remember um, sitting on my board, watching this thing roll in uh, at me, and thinking there's no way of getting away from this. Like there's no escaping what's about to happen. And so um, being a a foolish 20 year old, I paddle toward the wave, I get into position, I paddle as fast as I possibly can. And very quickly, I realize this is not going to go well. This is something bigger and faster and more powerful than I have ever experienced in my, in my life, okay? And I grew, up, I grew up surfing in San Diego. I lived in Hawaii for a portion of my life, so I'm familiar with the water. I'm familiar with the ocean. This is something I've never experienced before, and I'm paddling as fast as I can, and very quickly, this thing is picking me up 
And I look down and it's like looking down the face of a cliff. Like this thing is like the side of a mountain. Like I'm just looking down and I'm not getting up. I'm not gonna get to my feet. And so I, I just jump and it's like falling down an elevator shaft. Like it just feels like it's like a, like, like a, a wily coyote. Like I'm just falling <laughs> forever. And I'm having conversations with myself as I'm going <laughs> down, hit the water. Now, if you've grown up in the water, around the water or the ocean or anything, um, you know that when you hit this point and you know this has gone bad, you have to stay calm. You have to like keep your breathing like as relaxed as you can, relax your body, don't try to fight it. And so I do all of those things and yet, what I experience is like something I've never experienced before, I'll never forget it. Um, The mountain of water that was pouring over that wave was pressing me down and holding me down. And I was going into this place in the sea that I had never been before, it was dark, I was completely disoriented. I didn't know which way was up or which way was down. It was like being in a washing machine where you're just thrown all over the place and you're waiting for any sense of like release, relent, so you can get back up. And it wasn't happening. And I'm down and I'm down and I'm down and this thing is dark. And I can just imagine for a moment that this idea of baptism, that you go down into the depths and die that something dies, that's never been more real, more visceral for me than this experience. Where, yeah, I can imagine those thoughts are going through my head, this, I might not live out of this, right? And so for Israel, this was all they knew of the sea. There was no play, there was no like exercise. Obviously I made it out. (laughs) I survived, yeah. Um. This is all Israel knew of the water. And it wasn't just their own experience. There's a narrative through all of Israel's story about what this water means, right? We've read through this, if you've been reading the year of biblical literacy with us, that in Genesis, the earth is so corrupt, that man's heart is so wicked, that God sends a flood and and it wipes out, it swallows, completely engulfs humanity. And there's just a remnant named Noah who's left. And his job is to go and start over the creation story. So God uses water, he swallows up evil and he leaves a remnant to go and start things all over again. In Exodus, the people of God are are brought out of slavery in, in Egypt And they're up against the the Red Sea and God parts the sea. He makes a path for them. They go across and they're a remnant. Now they're intended as they cross from slavery on one side of the sea to freedom on the other side of the sea. They're intended to be a remnant and a people that begins the new story of God entering the earth and redeeming all things. And God swallows behind Israel as as Pharaoh and Egypt, the, the very picture of slavery and, and like a slave master and oppression rolls into the sea, God swallows completely up. Evil, darkness, brokenness, oppression. He swallows it up, rebellion, all of it. He swallows it up. And Israel's a remnant left on the other side. And this is Israel's story. And so there's a theme here 
through throughout the story of Israel that God uses this element of water to enact his judgment on the world and destroy sin. That, that he swallows it up and it's dead. It goes straight to death and then there's a remnant on the other side that is meant to bring new life and, and reorder creation and, and redeem the world that is the narrative that Israel understands. So you might then understand a little bit of what John is doing here when we get introduced to this in, in chapter three of Matthew. John is calling for repentance. Uh, he's out in the wilderness, middle of nowhere, and not just Israel, but all these people groups are coming to hear what John has to say. He says a new kingdom is coming now. So repent, and repentance is a word that means to turn completely from the direction you were going, to turn completely and move in the other opposite direction as far away from that thing as possible. And so it's not just something we do with our mind, it's not just something we do with our words where we say, I'm sorry, gosh, I, I repent, but it's actually like a repositioning of the direction we're going. It's, it's, it's a reorientation when we repent. And that's what John is calling all these people groups to do is repent and change direction. Change your direction. And then when they do that, and so many people are doing this, it's like people from like thousands, people are coming out to John and they make this declaration, yes, I wanna repent and move. Then John says, then a, you know what a natural thing for us to do? Remember what God does with that old thing, that, that slavery to sin, that, that disobedience, that rebellion? Let's kill that thing. Let's kill that thing. Let's destroy it. And so he welcomes people into the Jordan River, this, this moving, living body of water, and, and he takes them down. He takes them down under as, 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 uh, as God dealt with the earth in the flood. Right, as, as when Israel crosses over, as, as Pharaoh was swallowed up, the people are lowered down into this water and then they're brought back up. And the whole idea here is that God swallows up, his judgment swallows up that thing that you have repented from, that brokenness, that, that slavery to sin. God swallows that up in the waters and you come out a remnant, a new person, a new people, and, and you have an assignment. You have a charge as a new person. That's the significance of what's going on here with John. It's hugely important. And then as, as John is doing this, and, and more and more people are coming, it awakens the attention of the religious establishment. They say, wait, why is everyone going out there and not coming to the temple? Why is everyone going out there doing that different thing so let's go check it out. And they go out and John just meets them and calls them out immediately. And he says this really significant thing to them. Um, you know, he calls them a brood of vipers and insults them and like, you know, calls them out and all this different stuff. But then he says this really significant thing in verse eight. He says, and don't you think, do not go and think that you can say, well, we have Abraham as our father. Well, we are God's people. Well, we're the ones that have been chosen already. Don't think that you can say that anymore. 
And that's a significant shift in this story, in the storyline of God. It's a significant change. Because up until this point, there was only one way to be God's people. If you were born into the nation of Israel, if you were an Israelite, then something significant, there was a ritual that God had given Abraham in Genesis 17. He says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And you're gonna, people are going to know you're my people because you're going to undergo circumcision. <laughs> 99 years old, by the way. Ah, is right. <laughs> 99 years old. You're going to undergo circumcision. And then Abraham, because I'm making a covenant, this is a brand new thing, you're a new people, I want you to circumcise your whole house. And I want you to circumcise all your servants. And I want, to cir- want you to circumcise anyone else that comes in your house from this day forward. And I want all of your generations on the eighth day they're born, I want them to be circumcised. And it was this sign, it was this ritual, it was this ceremony, it was a symbol that these were God's people. This is the way God established it. And yet here in this moment, John is, is bridging from that place where Israel had this ritual and this way of being God's people that had, and then they'd completely fallen apart, completely disobeyed, completely turned their back on God. From that moment, John is bridging what the prophets talk about, and we're gonna get into. While Israel's in exile, while Israel is in their lowest point where where they feel abandoned by God, God has completely uh, just displaced them all over the region, and they've been overthrown by their enemies. In the prophets, in Jeremiah and Isaiah, God gives this word, I'm going to do something different. This is not going to be the way it was before. I'm going to bring someone. I'm going to bring a servant. I'm going to bring a rescuer. I'm going to bring a representative of myself to come and do what I wanted Israel to do. And there will be a new way. And this isn't just for Israel anymore. This is for all nations. I'm going to throw the gate wide. Everyone, come in. This is what John is bridging for those those, uh, religious establishment people. He's saying, no, that's not the way we do it. anymore. you can't just say, I am a son of Abraham. That doesn't do it anymore. God's doing something new now. And you don't believe me? Well, guess what? The kingdom of God, the kingdom is near. It's near. Oh, wait, it's walking up right now. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Of course, John fights him on this. I'm not worthy. This can't work. But in the end, he consents. And then this radical thing that changes all of human history happens. Hear this. This radical thing happens at this moment of baptism with Jesus. It says, as soon as Jesus was baptized and uh, he went up from out of the waters, those waters of judgment, that place of death representing, when he came up out of that, at that moment, heaven broke open. The spirit of God descended like a dove on Christ. And people heard God's voice say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. 
This is my son whom I love. I am well pleased with him. Okay, this is a shift in, in all of human history, and this is significant for us. You guys hear this. Okay, this, at this moment, things will never be the same. As Christ goes down into the waters, and listen, he didn't need to be baptized, right? He, he had no sin, right? He was the, the perfect representation. He was the perfect embodiment of God and man, Right? There, there was no brokenness. There was no sin. There was no separation between him and, and God. And yet he does this for us. He does this for us. He, he connects to us this way. That all righteousness might be fulfilled, he says. He goes down into the waters. And when he comes up, there's this word that's used. It's, uh, it's called schizomanus schizomanus. It's a Greek word. And it's a violent word that, uh, that means heaven was not just open, like a window open. It means there is a ripping apart, a violent tearing apart of what had separated us, humanity, from the kingdom of God. And now the kingdom of God has broken in. It's arrived. It's here. You guys with me? The kingdom of God has broken in in this moment and things will never be the same. This is a new story that God is doing. So this should mean something to us when we go into or offer ourselves up to this ceremony, the symbol of baptism. There's so much meaning. There's so much purpose for us in the story of God. But there's also this incredible thing on the other side of the waters, this incredible thing that happens. We are united with Christ in this. When Christ was baptized, he was previewing, he was foretelling what would happen three years later, that he would go to the cross, that he would take all of the wrath and sin and brokenness of the world on himself. He would say, it is finished, it's done now. He would take it to the grave all the way to death and he would come out the other side. He would come out of those waters of judgment and wrath and everything would be different. Do you understand that when that happened, we now live in a resurrected world that does not mean that everything is perfect. We live in this in-between state. Listen to, um, th this is the verse we read, okay, um, from Romans that Paul is saying, don't you know that all of us who were baptized in Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live in new life. When you go into baptism, when you repent, I make that, that, that declaration, I, I'm not a slave to this anymore. It's a picture all the way back to Exodus. It's the same language that Paul is using. When he says, and therefore you are no longer slaves to sin. This, this is not your master anymore. He's talking those same words as Pharaoh. That Pharaoh picture, that overlord, that master over you. 
you can say to that thing, you don't own me anymore. You, I don't belong to you anymore. That thing has died. I, I've turned and moved. And now as I go into those waters, that thing is put to death once and for all. I come out of those waters, a resurrected being in a resurrected world. It is all new. It's a new game. And so listen, for us, you guys, this should be a significant game changer. If you're a follower of Christ and you have not been baptized, there's nothing in in scripture that says you must be baptized to to be saved and go into heaven. There's actually examples of people who, who were invited into heaven that were not baptized, okay? But listen, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? I mean, this is something... Now, as Julie Barrios uh, puts it, and I think it's beautiful, this is, baptism is a prayer that we make with our entire body. We spend a lot of time declaring and confessing and repenting, I hope we do, we should, of the things that we are walking away from, the things we don't want to have mastery over us anymore, the things we want to be liberated from. We use, we talk about those things, but baptism is a place where we physically say all of, of who I am into the grave, I am united with Christ, out of the grave, I'm united in new life. And then listen, that, 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 that's not just the end. We don't just pat ourselves on the back, okay, at that point. Listen to what N.T. Wright says. Um, he says that Christian living means dying with Christ and rising again. That is part uh, of the meaning of baptism. The starting point, the starting point of the Christian pilgrimage The model of pilgrimage is helpful since baptism awakens the echoes of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt and going off to the promised land. The whole world is now God's holy land. The whole world is now God's holy land. And God will reclaim it and will renew it as the ultimate goal of our wanderings. As we go throughout this world, as you go into your tech company, as you go into your graphic design firm, as you go into your school, as you go into these places, you are a remnant of God to this world. And you take with you the resurrected life of Christ. The word says that everywhere you set your foot is holy ground because of the spirit in you. So we have work to do. We have a job to do. To go be the thing that Israel was meant to be at the beginning. To be the light unto the world that all nations might be drawn unto Christ. That is our assignment. And this is, again, I'll finish with this. This is how N.T. Wright puts it. It's beautiful. The revolutionary new world, which began in the resurrection of Jesus. The world where where Jesus reigns as Lord, having won the victory over sin and death, has its frontline outposts, its frontline outposts in those who in baptism have shared his death and resurrection. The immediate, uh, immediate stage between the resurrection of Jesus and the renewal of all things, or the renewal of the whole world is the renewal of human beings, you and me, in our lives of obedience here and now. And this is where I'll close, church. Listen, if you have 
believed in faith in Christ and you've been baptized, I wanna remind you that that master of sin has no claim to you any longer. It died in the waters of your baptism. It died at the confession that Christ bore all of that for you. You are free. Remind yourself of that daily. You are free. You are no longer under the yoke of that slavery. You've been liberated. And if that is true, then we have this assignment to be the people in San Francisco that God called Israel to be at the very beginning, a holy people. Your holiness matters. What you do with your body matters. What you say with your mouth matters. We should be people of prayer and intercession that long for God to break into the places all around us that he has placed us should be the people of justice that fight for those who cannot fight for themselves. Should be the people of radical grace that don't harbor a grudge, that don't put other people under a yoke of slavery. Instead, we are those that go with keys, unlocking that yoke for the people around us. That's what we've been given. That's what we are called to be. Let's pray. Church, I just want to wait on the Lord for a moment. I'd ask that you just quiet your, your mind and your heart from any distraction, Holy Spirit come. We say the Lord rebuke you, Satan, from any lies you would try to bring in to this moment right now. Holy Spirit, would you just guard this moment, this space? Would you speak to your sons and your daughters, Lord? Lord, if there are places that we have lived our whole life in chains, I just sense there's so many of us that have lived in chains. Even those of us that have grown up in the church have been told the Bible stories that have lived just in chains of bondage. No more, in Jesus' name, no more. God, if there are places that we have just accepted that we will never be free of, that this thing truly is a master over us, ruling over us, Lord, would you minister, would you speak truth right now to the hearts of your, your people? Nothing is greater than your love. We are never too far gone. Your arm is never too short to reach down and rescue your people. Never. 
Would you set people free today, Jesus? Would they see you like they've never seen you before? King, warrior, faithful, full of truth and power, sovereign. Would you free your people? And God, I just um, want to pray for my brothers and sisters who have never known you, who are here today and they've never known who you are. God, would you reveal by your spirit in ways that words can't who you are? Or would they hear those words from you that you spoke to Christ? This is my son. This is my daughter in whom I love and I am well pleased. Maybe they've never heard that. Maybe you have never heard those words from any human before. She didn't know that those are the words of God for you. As we identify with Christ in his death and new life, those words for Christ, that I, this is my son and daughter in whom I love, I'm well pleased, that is what he says over you. As you come to him, and you trust him, you open your heart to him. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus.